Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I don't know if you feel this way, but I really feel these days like education land is just totally on fire, that the threats to public education are so dire. And yet it's really, it's hard to convey to people the magnitude of what's happening. Do you feel that way? You've set it up so I can't really say no. Um, No, I I do feel that way. Uh, And I feel like the challenge is rooted in the fact that it's so seemingly disparate, right, that what's happening in one locality is a little different than what's happening in another place, that the threat is, you know, multifaceted, and you really have to kind of step back to be able to see the whole thing. But it also takes a lot of work to try to hunt down all of the examples and all the manifestations of what is actually like a pretty well-coordinated effort to unmake public education. It's a longstanding one too, right? Uh, as we detail in our book, it's it's several decades old. Well, as our regular listeners know, we love it when people reach out to us with episode ideas. And that's exactly what happened here. Somebody reached out to us and he said, hey, the world is on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and he's got... Um, a way of using a case study, in this case, the state of Michigan, as an entry into helping people understand what exactly is happening. And he also happens to have a lot of evidence at his disposal. So I I wrote him, speaking of on fire, I wrote to him on Twitter the other day and said, man, you are on fire right now. Just he has so many charts and graphs. And, and if if all of Twitter was just like, as informative as Josh Cowan's Twitter feed, we would all, we could all drop out of school. We, we could go along with the unmaking of public education because we would just be on Twitter learning everything all day long. Well, thank you, Jack, for setting the stage so concisely. Our special guest today is Josh Cowan. He's a professor of education policy at Michigan State University and the founding director of the Education Policy Innovation Collaborative, or EPIC. But he comes to us today as a sort of education policy Cassandra. My sister English majors will appreciate the Virgil reference. You may have encountered some of Josh's warnings yourself. This summer, he wrote a widely read op-ed entitled, After Two Decades of Studying Voucher Programs, I'm Now Firmly Opposed to Them. I'm going to read to you a paragraph because it neatly captures where Josh is these days. Quote, Vouchers are dangerous to American education. They promise an all-too-simple solution to tough problems like unequal access to high-quality schools, segregation, and even school safety. In small doses years ago, vouchers seem like they might work. But as more states have created more and larger voucher programs, experts like me have learned enough to say that these programs on balance can severely hinder academic growth, especially for vulnerable kids. End quote. 
So let's just cut to the chase here. How bad are we actually talking about? Well, there have been four big evaluations of what I call at-scale voucher programs. At-scale meaning fully realized in a way as close to the sort of vision of some of these conservative economists that sort of thought of these things 30 or 40 years ago. So in Louisiana, there's a statewide voucher program. In Indiana, there's a statewide voucher program. In in Washington, D.C., there's a district-wide program. And in Ohio, essentially, there's a statewide program. Now there are others, but there have been four really big evaluations of these programs. And all of these evaluations have carried multiple components. Components, but all of them have been somewhere or another focused on student outcomes as measured by test scores, which still are, are kind of the coin of the realm for the sort of education outcome community. We've seen some of the biggest drops in test scores we've ever seen in the research community of any sort for the people who take a voucher and move to private school. As Josh likes to point out, if you're worried about pandemic learning loss, then some of these voucher programs are actually worse. The results in Ohio and in Louisiana, for example, on math are almost double some of the estimates that folks have had for what the pandemic did to math test scores. It's at that magnitude, I like to say pandemic style learning loss. Another comparison that's actually a little smaller, but it's it's about the same would be Hurricane Katrina. So if you're talking about what else have we seen in 20 years of education research that has caused a decline in test scores as severe as school vouchers? You got to go to the pandemic and you got to go to Hurricane Katrina. On average, a bunch of kids took a voucher in Louisiana or in Ohio and they moved to a private school and they suffered that badly in terms of their test scores. We're talking about nine or 10 months uh, loss of learning. It's massive. So for me, it started there. A little background. Josh is a political scientist by training. He was actually part of one of the first cohorts of education researchers to be funded by the U.S. Department of Ed. And from 2005 to 2010, he was part of a research team that audited the Milwaukee School Voucher Program. In many ways, his career has tracked successive efforts to make education research more data-driven and less, well, vibes-based. There still is this belief in the education research community, at least from the policy-oriented folks, and I'm a part of that, that we really have this evidence problem in education. And so in the the policy-oriented community, data is one sort of element to that, just improving data systems. And then the other is just sort of improving the base of evidence around everything, whether it's pedagogy, whether it's curriculum, whether it's school choice. Almost 20 years ago as a grad student, it was evidence, it was randomized control trials, all all this stuff. And then it was like this focus on applying models of employment to like teachers and so on with race to the top in the 2010s. And then we got into the RPP world. The research practice partnership world is just simply this idea that we can bring evidence to bear toward both policy and practitioner community, meaning at state and large district levels, we can help decision makers understand what works through the use of evidence and data. And data don't have to be big quantitative statistics. They can be information obtained from focus groups or classroom observations or whatever. This is a model you see a lot in various research communities, that we need to be more relevant to policy and we need to be more relevant to practice. In other words, Josh is what we often refer to on this program, lovingly, of course, as a data boy. In fact, you might even say he's an OG data boy. On with our story, Josh ends up founding one of those research practice partnerships or RPPs at Michigan State. But he's starting to have doubts about how much data really matters. 
I haven't completely stepped away from that idea, but I'm a little more skeptical than I was maybe six or seven years ago that sort of <laughs> the political infrastructure that we have come to know well in the education world really can incorporate evidence in the kind of value neutral way that RPPs tend to be largely organized around. And meaning evidence tends to help maybe on the margins push policy, but I don't believe that it, I haven't seen it happen a whole lot. Part of that is we don't get a lot of evidence as strongly and as clearly for or against a policy or practice like we do against the school voucher world. You don't get evidence as strong as we've seen now in the research community against vouchers. I mean, I thought 10 years ago they were dead. In my naivete, I thought we've got evidence. We know they're terrible. They don't work. We're moving on. If that's not enough to change the conversation, nothing is in my view. Which brings us to the present. Two years ago, Josh stepped away from Epic in part so that he could be more public about what he sees as the real dangers posed by the movement to privatize schools. To be candid with you, I don't think I'd be as out and public against vouchers if I were still running the center because I'd have, I had funders to answer to. You know, you have to be thoughtful about sort of the list of folks that that are perhaps operating against you. When you're in a world where you depend on, for example, memos of, of understanding and agreement to get signed for you to get data access, when you need to convince somebody who may be on the other side of the aisle than you are politically that they need to maintain a line item in their budget to help fund you or things like that. I mean, it's, a, and I wish that I could tell you, well, I'd be doing this no matter what, but I don't know that for a fact. And I happen to be in a position at this point where, frankly, I'm a full professor. I can't go any higher. I have tenure and I'm, and I've seen some terrible things happening in this privatization space. And I've been inside some of the rooms when these conversations have been happening and things are too dire at this point. I don't think we have the luxury that maybe we did 15 or 16 years ago where we can take a wait and see approach. So Jack, part of what interested me so much about Josh's story is his sort of, you know, his personal journey, as we say in Bachelor Nation. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of the Jack Schneider story. You know, uh, academic, once held in moderately high regard, becomes a, a bomb thrower, now really has one friend and it's me. <laughs> And what? And of course, I'm exaggerating, but it it also made me realize that you know it's not that common of a story, right? Like there, like there aren't that many of you. Yeah, the first thing that I think of uh, when I think about you know, why there aren't more education professors getting involved in public conversations about public education and the future of education in this country, um, weighing in on particular policies, getting involved in you know, grassroots campaigns or working directly uh, in the world of politics. I think about the incentives that direct us uh, towards particular kinds of work, right? And, and so one of those incentives is the tenure and promotion system, right? That may be the strongest set of incentives that we have um, that allow us to have jobs uh, that are secure in an increasingly insecure profession um, and to move up the ranks and to gain some small measure of public recognition, right? That that the key indicators there for tenure and promotion committees are peer-reviewed publications, um, conference presentations, uh, you know, invited lectures at universities, grant dollars, right? These are things that are very much inner 
facing, right? They, they face inward towards the academic community. And, you know, there's something to be said for that, right? Peer review matters. Things that don't go through peer review don't have the same kind of rigor applied to them that they do when it's got to get past experts in a particular field. But while those incentives are facing you inward towards some, you know, potentially valuable things, um, they are turning your back on things that are, I think, equally valuable. Like right? podcasts. So, <laughs> you joke, right? <laughs> but, but this takes a lot of time. Uh, it takes less time for me than for you. <laughs> but frankly, that's because if I put as much time into this as you do, I'd lose my job, right? Like, and and nobody on any tenure and promotion committee anywhere in America, as far as I know, is going to say, well, you know, this person had fewer peer-reviewed journal articles than we'd like to see, but wow, right? He's a, he's a really well-informed, dynamic co-host on this podcast that we all like, right? No, zero credit, right? Or... Uh, hey, you know, we, we thought this person was going to have at least one book with a university press uh, in the, the six years that he's been here. But, hey, wow, like 40 op-eds. Way to go. Way to shape the public conversation. No, zero credit, right? So doing those things is considered a kind of extracurricular activity. And so the folks who are engaged in that kind of work and who are spending, in some cases, tremendous amounts of time, right, writing for the public, directly engaging the public, talking with legislators, um, co-hosting podcasts, right, they're doing that on top of all of the other commitments they face. And I would say they're dealing with a perception that that kind of direct engagement is somehow taking you away from what you should be doing as a scholar. Particularly, I think, um, you know, people who are early or even mid-career, right? I think there's a kind of assumption that, you know, very senior scholars, folks who are at the end of their careers, right, that maybe they've earned the right to weigh in on particular subjects, or maybe they're not as research active as they once were, but they want to remain active in some way. I think that's all deeply problematic. And, you know, there have been rumblings over the years about, you know, a, a collective shift in the way we think of the responsibilities of the professoriate by thinking through things like what are the standards for tenure and promotion. But I think that, you know, for me, the, the thing that guides me towards this kind of engaged scholarship is not simply that I find it rewarding and interesting and personally valuable. It's that I'm literally a public employee, right? So if I'm not engaging with the public, if I'm not engaging with the state legislature, if I'm not talking with uh, school and district leaders, if I'm not you know, writing about proposed policies, then the value that I'm adding is just less clear to the public. Like, sure, I teach, right, a little bit. Um, those of us who are research uh, active professors, right, we have a harder case to make there uh, if we're not teaching as much. And you can see that that's one of the reasons we've seen the adjunctification of higher education is that the, the public continues to lose confidence uh, in, you know, what they're getting for their dollar there. And I think the 
the public should have tremendous confidence in the importance of higher education, specifically in public higher education, and that one of the ways that we can instill that confidence in them is by becoming increasingly active. And that's not to say there, there aren't scholars who are active. There are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of scholars who are active, but they're not the majority. And the organizations to which they are members, right, like the Scholar Strategy Network, are a minority of organizations that are focused in that direction. Back to Josh Cowan, there is another part of this story that is important. Josh, of course, is in Michigan, which since the 1990s has been home to a, well, robust experiment in school privatization. I like to say if you were a, a charter school advocate and you were taking on a, a client like a lobbyist would or a lawyer would, the Michigan charter school system would be your absolute nightmare as a client. It is probably the worst example of charter school management and performance you can get across the country. And the thing, in my view, that makes our charter school environment so bad, and, and it's related to where we are today, is 85% of our charter schools in Michigan are run by for-profit firms, which is rare. Most charter schools in most states are not run by for-profit firms. In fact, many states actually have a prohibition against a charter school run by for-profit, not in Michigan. They're also the least transparent charter schools I'm aware of. Now, I do live in Michigan, and I've been studying charter schools for 16, 17 years. I know less about most of our charter schools here than I do about places I've worked, like New Orleans, for example. I mean, most other states at least have some degree of performance accountability. And watching Michigan's privatization experiment play out left Josh increasingly skeptical about the claims being made for a market-based education system. When DeVos was nominated for Secretary of Ed, the phrase that kept getting used in the national press to describe her sort of brainchild system in Michigan was the wild, wild west, meaning anything goes, no accountability, lots of openings and lots of closings for charter schools. In our state system, we have about 110,000 children in charter schools. And in places like Detroit and Flint, which I don't think I have to tell listeners about the sort of extraordinary poverty in both of these districts and what happened to the Flint water crisis, we're talking about half the children that are learning in these in these cities are learning in charter schools, not city school districts. So we don't have the luxury of kind of just like closing a bunch of charter schools overnight. And when a charter school does close for poor performance, you could argue, well, the market's kicking in, and that's what conservative advocates for the system argue. But we know that closing a school is incredibly disruptive to a child. Just simply saying, oh, these schools open and shut, just like the market demands them to, just as if it's a Burger King that doesn't get enough customers. That's not good enough. You no doubt caught the reference to Betsy DeVos there. We are in Michigan, after all. As you know from reading A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, enacting private school vouchers of the sort that Josh has spent his career studying has been the DeVos family priority going back decades. Well, fast forward to the present, and the combination of culture war, hyperpolarization, and backlash to Governor Gretchen Whitmer's pandemic response, including public school closures, has given the DeVosses a big opening. The vision is a fully privatized education system. I'm convinced of it. Essentially, a system in which parents take public money and they use it the way you would use a travel voucher from Delta. We've all been through this. Your plane gets canceled and they say, here's a travel voucher to use anytime in the continental U.S. for the next year and you can buy your flight. That's what they want for schools. Here's $10,000. It would be about $10,000 if it happened today. Go spend it on tuition. Go spend it on educational services or whatever. And we pay for it by taking the money out of the public school system. 
Just a little background on the DeVos proposal. It's called Let Michigan Kids Learn, and it lets donors contribute to a private scholarship fund and then receive tax credits that would be capped at $500 million total for now. And while the terminology is different, at its heart is the same private and religious school voucher idea that Michigan voters have rejected multiple times in the past. So this time voters won't be weighing in because the plan goes around them. If the total amount of spending through the voucher program goes up to 90% of that $500 million cap, it automatically adds 20% to the cap next year and then another 20% after that. So it could take in three years, for example, you could be up to a billion dollars spent on private services just by getting close to that cap. It's an automatic trigger to raise the cap. Very quickly, we're talking about no, no limits on it. And that's built into the the legislation they're trying to pass. I mean, a billion dollars, I can't even really give an analogy for what that would, even 500 million, that's that's crippling in some cases. That That comes out of the tax system, that comes out of public funds. If it doesn't happen in the year the voucher program were instituted, within two or three, it would be coming out of state aid. It would be coming out of our local school districts. And that's the goal. Chances are, if you're in a state where vouchers are being debated, enacted, or expanded, this all feels very familiar to you. That even as voucher advocates are increasingly explicit that the end goal is to phase out public education, the coverage of the issue is frustratingly both sidesy. Josh says there's a reason for that. Well-meaning journalists are actually trying to do their job, but they get researchers like me, like others, just throw a lot of data at them. And one of the goals here of the conservative right in the education space is to muddy up that conversation with respect to voucher evidence and to make it look like it's this sort of ivory tower nerdy academic debate. Oh, well, Cowan says the test scores are bad in Louisiana, but DeAngelis over there says that it's not so bad in Florida. And and then what do we do? And so what ends up happening is it turns into kind of a both sides argument. And you see this written everywhere, right? Well, mixed results. They are not mixed results. I wrote a piece for Brookings just a couple of weeks ago on this specific issue because the narrative for people who are somewhat informed about the research is that vouchers hurt test scores but help kids get into college. And it's actually not true if you really look at study by study by study by study. It's just that the test scores look so bad that no impact on graduation rates or no impact on college enrollment looks pretty good. What's been most concerning to me in my own home state and in the academic community is it's not naivete, like everybody specializes. I just happen to specialize in this and it just happens to be what people are pushing. And I thought it was over. And I'm trying to say, look, guys, it isn't even close. And that brings us back to a question that has now been plaguing Josh for the last decade. How is it that a policy that has been a measurable failure hasn't just survived, but is now poised for massive expansion? I say this as, as, as a white male here. These programs are thought of and the brainchild and the, you know, the love child of, of a lot of conservative white men. And if in some sense, it's the ultimate affirmative action program for white male ideas, because if any other, I mean, think about teachers unions and, and government agencies, any of the sort of right wing kind of monsters that are get created in their, in the sort of their, their argumented framework, 
if any of these programs saw test score drops to the extent that we've seen for vouchers on par with the pandemic or the hurricane, does any do any of us think they'd have lasted 10 months, let alone 10 years? It's been almost 10 years since these Louisiana test scores came out. But they keep changing the goalposts. It moved away from test scores to parent satisfaction, to religiosity, to values. And now we get into the world where we have the values conversation. That's where we get into the anti-democratic, discriminatory cultural warfare issues because they can't talk anymore about test score impacts because they're so bad. That's how I made that progression. So, Jack, we just heard Josh Cowan talk about how voucher advocates keep moving the goalposts. And we got a vivid reminder of this recently when the Heritage Foundation released its new Education Freedom Report Card. And I like this to me was just incredible. So you you look at it and I'll I'll put a, a link in our, our reading list for our Patreon subscribers. You look at it and it's just an absolutely totally upside down world. So if you click on Massachusetts, where you and I are based, Massachusetts comes in at number 47. Then you look around and you think, well, hmm, who's really bringing it home? And you click on West Virginia and they're coming in at number seven. And so that causes one to wonder, well, what is it that that the Heritage Foundation is measuring in order to reach that ranking? And you read through and it's, it's, it's really random. They're down on Massachusetts because there are too many licensed teachers. Um, Massachusetts spends too much money. Too many of the school districts have diversity directors. And, and then they sort of acknowledge, like squeezed in at the very end, almost as a footnote, well, you know, Massachusetts does do very well on, on NAEP scores and West Virginia does come in around 48. There's a, you know, kind of a vague <laughs> reference to ROI, like that harkened yeah. back to an older time. But it just, it made me think like, if you're really going to shift, you're going to move away from the accountability mindset and we're going to define everything in terms of education freedom, this is what you end up with. Yeah, yeah. The the first thing I thought of uh, was I've got a friend who's from Alabama, and uh, he's got all sorts of unkind things to say about Mississippi, but they more or less um, come together around a theme, which is that uh, he appreciates Mississippi being there because it keeps Alabama from being last in various things. And Mississippi comes in sixth here, uh, whereas Alabama comes in 16th. So, uh, yeah, looking at this set of rankings not only reminds me how preposterously unhelpful rankings tend to be, right? Because you're aggregating what is for most people uh, a set of indicators that um, remain invisible, right? Most people will not dig into your methodology there and come away believing that in this case, some states are better than others for whatever reason. Um, but as you said, Jennifer, it really um, clarifies the extent to which the goalposts have been moved here. If we were to flash back 10 years or 20 years and see something like this, um, it would largely be a reflection of student standardized test scores. And we would see Massachusetts coming in first or maybe second. And this hard pivot to education freedom that has been made by so many on the right, uh, I think is going to be challenging eventually for some conservatives who really do have strong beliefs about what schools should be doing, right? And so I think that 
you know, one of the things that is going to result from this moving of goalposts is that they're going to lose some of their supporters along the way. They may gain some new supporters, um, but I think we're going to see uh, people dropping off and saying, this, this has finally gone beyond what I'm comfortable with. I think you're absolutely right. And the other thing that really stood out to me was how, what a complicated moment we're in politically. Like when I looked at the report card, I was really surprised that it made no mention of pandemic era school closings. I would have, you know, the Heritage Foundation has really hammered on that as uh, as a, a way to sort of nudge parents out of the public system. But that doesn't show up in the freedom indicator at all. And part of the reason is, I think, connected to their utter disregard of something like NAEP scores, that if you listen to the, if you pay attention to conservative media, you know, they've been relentless in the last few weeks about going after teachers unions as the cause of plummeting NAEP scores. But if your freedom index doesn't care about NAEP scores, that becomes a harder argument to make. So I think it just shows you sort of what a topsy-turvy world we're in, but but also how what a big role political expediency is playing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that there are a, a set of moves, essentially, that have uh, been standard moves that you make over the past couple of decades. And one of them is to reach for student standardized test scores. Uh, and as you were suggesting, right, to, to use those in a politically expedient way, um, whether it's to use them against teachers or to make the case for charter schools. And the set of moves is going to have to change because the instinctual reaching for student standardized test scores uh, is no longer going to be useful if what you're saying is it doesn't matter what the test scores are as long as parents are choosing the school. Um, if what you're saying is that choice itself is the ultimate outcome variable, right, that somebody chose it, uh, then that requires a new set of rhetorical devices, a new data set, um, and a kind of a new mindset with regard to um, what, it, what we collectively think of as success, back to Josh. As our conversation was wrapping up, I asked him if there was anything he wanted to say to the academics in our listening audience, especially the members of the sort of data-driven universe that he's been a part of for his entire career. Our community has spent at least a decade building the infrastructure of state data systems, very rich collections of information about kids, teachers, and schools, all with the idea that evidence should inform policymaking and decision-making. And it is through that mechanism and through that set of infrastructure for information that we know just how bad these school voucher programs are, just with respect to academic outcomes. Let's just keep with that. We spend our whole lives dedicated to avoiding programs like this, and somehow they're still breathing. And they're breathing because members of our community, but mostly people pretending to be members of the research community, because they have PhDs, they're lobbyists with PhDs, have turned the conversation away from things like test scores to character formation, these kind of really quasi-nebulous concepts that are somewhat associated with values, instead of thinking about just sort of the types of outcomes we're used to studying in schools. And with that comes sort of aggressive undermining of institutions that we take for granted as researchers, departments of education, school districts, state governments with transparent rules. In other words, Josh hopes that academics will start to feel more urgency about the threat posed by school privatization. 
number of us have spent the last year or the last two thinking about whether holding our academic associations, our professional conferences and meetings in states that discriminate against uh, some of our members because of how they identify with their gender, whether they're pregnant or whether they have the right to choose um, certain types of reproductive medical care. We've been very worried about those things and rightfully so. And yet we haven't had the urgency about existing public programs that put those kinds of restrictions on children every single day. And that's what I'm concerned about. Finally, school privatization may seem like a separate issue from, say, the larger push to make voting harder or to roll back rights. It isn't. The same groups and deep-pocketed donors are pretty much driving both. Take the Heritage Foundation. In addition to that new Education Freedom Report card we talked about a minute ago, Heritage also has a quote-unquote election integrity scorecard that rewards states for how many restrictions they place on voting. And that's not the only thing these groups have in common. In Michigan and in other states, the groups that are running to push voucher programs to privatize education are literally the same groups and the same people and the same money that are election deniers, in some cases, standing up for the actions on January 6th, and at minimum, also organizing against reproductive rights. In in, in Michigan, for example, the spokesman and chief campaign strategist for the ballot initiative that is pushing to privatize our schools that DeVos is funding is also the lead spokesperson against our constitutional amendment to enshrine a woman's right to choose permanently in our constitution. It's literally the same person running the two campaigns at the same time. These movements are all the same. They're not unlinked. And I think that's another part of the sense of urgency here. This is not just some arcane academic fight. This is an argument about civic institutions and ultimately the the future of democracy, in my view. That was Josh Cowan. He's a professor of education policy at Michigan State University. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at Josh Cowan, MSU. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss the end of school accountability and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. What does that blockbuster New York Times investigation into Hasidic schools tell us about the future of public education? If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you podcast and become a supporter. So Jack, as I was getting to work on this episode, I was also reading a book that came out recently. It's called How to Educate an American, The Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. I'm going to hold it up so you can see it's got uh, an apple with a flag on it. Um, and it's by um, some friends of yours, Michael Petrilli and Chester Finn Jr. My and um, I actually um, I actually wrote to Mike Petrilli and told him how much I was enjoying the book. And um, I really startled him. But I didn't I I didn't tell him that, you know, part of what what spoke to me was that the book really reads as bittersweet, right? Mm. That the that here are these guys who really, you know, like more than anybody else have shaped the the most recent iteration of education reform. People like Petrilli and and Chester Finn, or you as you call him, Checker Finn. And that, you know, as we've been hearing throughout this episode, the, you know, that accountability moment that that they've been, you know, the chief cheerleaders for for so long is now it's it's in his waning days. And and so I think to me it it really raises this question, well, you know, what happens now? 
Yeah, I think a related question to that is what does it mean to be a conservative in education these days, right? What do you stand for? What kinds of policies do you want to advance? I was reading an essay by Yuval Levin, who's one of the uh, contributors to that volume that you're reading. And there was a paragraph there that just really stood out to me, um, which I think is, is just worth reading. Uh, he writes, the implications of all this for education are enormous, of course. It means that conservatives place heavy emphasis on sustaining the institutions necessary for moral formation and social peace, while progressives tend to emphasize liberating individuals from the oppressive burdens of a social order steeped in injustice. And I thought, like, that's the opposite of the case that you hear so often these days about what a conservative is in education and, and what a progressive is. Um, that, that that is precisely upside down. He says, as a result, progressive education wants to liberate the student to be himself or herself, while conservative education wants to form the student to be better suited to the responsibilities of citizen, which, citizenship, which, again, strikes me as, like, completely out of touch with this present moment in which people who identify as conservatives, right, who vote for Republican candidates, are seeking to pull apart public education in order to advance a vision of personal freedom that they think should be enacted through the schools, right? That, that people should have the liberty to choose whatever kind of education they want for young people, which directly contrasts with this vision of, you know, what would be I think a historical uh, understanding of what conservatism means, but it's changing, right? It's, it's changing right now. We are living through a historical moment in which the very notion of conservatism is, is transforming, right? That the, the word itself is rooted in conservation, in the maintenance of a particular social order and a set of institutions that advance that order. Um, I just, I, I find the whole thing really interesting and I can't help but think that there's a reckoning coming for those on the right in the same way that we're now living through the reckoning that the left has faced for the shift towards the center uh, that began to happen in the 1980s and 90s um, and that really transformed, you know, the Democratic Party's approach to policy, perhaps especially in education. There, um, there was another fascinating piece in this book about, you know, like there, you know, what kinds of policies should rural schools implement in order to confront the sort of deaths of despair, you know, kind of the, you know, like the end of work for, for, uh, for white men without college degrees in particular. And I thought, you know, like this is so ironic because. I can point you to school districts in Texas that are doing exactly this. They're, you know, kids are leaving with associate's degrees or trade certificates in hand. And the response of conservatives is not to embrace what those schools are, are doing, but instead to introduce policies to push parents out of them. Right, and it right. just, or, it, to, or to introduce policies that, that ban transgender students from participating <laughs> in sports, right? <laughs> right. 
So I think it, it is just, I think you're absolutely right. There, It is a reckoning and it's something that we're going to be returning to um, on this show again and again. And I think what I see a lot of, of people, a lot of our listeners and the, the sort of communities that they're a part of reckoning with is that we're all very much still in this accountability mindset. And I'm thinking of a blockbuster story that broke um, a week or so ago that we're going to be discussing in the weeds. And that would be the New York Times uh, big piece on on Hasidic schools in New York City and and how uh, for a significant number of kids who attend these schools, they're learning religion, but not a whole lot else. And I thought, wouldn't it be a great idea to go into that story in some depth in the special area that we hold out to lure people over the paywall if this appeals to you? Aren't I doing this? Isn't that tr- this transition particularly it's so seamless? seamless? It's so yeah. seamless. If this appeals to you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. You'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month, like a custom reading list and and access to uh basically All like a rope and a roped things. off a roped off area yeah and, right. and Jack, a, a limo what? ride with jennifer jennifer drives the limo around <laughs> you would not want me driving driving a limo <laughs> for the rest of you uh thank you for listening to the show thanks for doing all the things that you do to support this show, which, you know, I joke about it, but we really are a community and we're a democratic community here, right? You all send us your ideas for shows um, for no kind of compensation, right? We see you tweeting about the show. Um, you know, some of you are elected officials tweeting about the show, talking That's about particularly how, exciting. Yeah, talking about uh, particular episodes that you found relevant to what's going on in your community. Um, so thank you all for that. Uh, I was actually just looking uh, because I do put uh, this under service on my CV, and I was just looking to see like, well, how many listens do we get? Per episode, and once upon a time, I remember writing like twenty five hundred to five thousand was the range that I gave, and then I eventually upgraded it to like approximately five thousand, and I just changed it to like approximately ten thousand per episode because that's what the SoundCloud page, at least, you know, who knows if that captures everything, but that's kind of where we're at, and and that's with you know like zero advertisements and we don't have Ira Glass telling people, you know, today's episode is just going to be an episode of Have You Heard? Because we're such huge fans of it. Um, we're not sponsored by the New York Times. Um, we're just a, a show that, you know, people share with others. So keep that going uh, because that's what makes it worth doing. Wow, I think people who are waiting for your usual gimmicky thing that yeah, you no, do. Yeah, no, they're crying. They're, they're, they're crying. being moved. Mm-hmm. They're crying, yeah. You can't hear note, them right now because, you know, we need to work on that feature. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard.